Hey, turn in your Bible to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week for our Father's Day message. And I'll preach a message to you today called Problem Solved. Problem Solved. We're going to walk out of here with some answers. We're going to walk out of here with some solutions today. You can also put a marker in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to end up there. I'm going to read and share a parable with you today, explain what it means to me, and let God show you some things that it can mean to you. Hey, can I get a big shout from all of our Freedom Conference attendees? They have got their shirts on. I'm telling you, they are youth camp excited to be here this morning. It was great stuff this weekend, Friday night, and, and pretty much all day Saturday, yesterday at our Freedom Conference. If you're interested in that, we're going to start signing up for Freedom Groups real soon. All of our Freedom Conference attenders are going to be leading a Freedom Group next semester. See, his word is not as, Psalm 138 says, no, I'm just kidding. Hey, no, they had a great time. I'm proud of them, and it was an honor to watch them worship and grow. I believe some, some incredible things are planned ahead. We've got one of the, the, the most favorite, we got a lot of favorite, but one of the most favorite things that we do is we have a baptismal celebration today. We've got several people that are going to be water baptized. After our third service, we bought a small swimming pool with a filter and we put the necessary chlorine and materials in that pool. It's safe. My children tried it out. <laughs> it's safe. And then we cleaned it back out again and filtered through it. So in Jesus' name, come on, you're not going to come to church and get infected. You're going to come to church and get healed. Come on, somebody. That's just what we're going to believe in Jesus' name. So uh, I want to invite if our, any of our freedom attenders uh, have never been water baptized, then come on. The only prerequisite for water baptism is that you receive salvation. John wasn't teaching a water baptism class on the banks of the Jordan River before everybody jumped in. They just repented of their sin, claimed Jesus as their Lord, and he baptized them in his name. So if you've never been water baptized, we can find you a t-shirt. You just need dark clothes. We've got some candidates signed up, and I would love for our Freedom Conference attenders to join us. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 23, the Bible says, search me. Okay, we're going we're gonna to direct God's word inward today. A lot of stuff happening around us. A lot, of hap a lot of things happening in society outside of sanctuaries and worship centers. Come on, a lot of stuff happening on social media. But God's word is the same and is the only thing that will last forever. Psalm 123. 39 verse 23 says, search me. I, I can't do anything about everything around me. But there's one thing I am completely responsible for. Search me, oh God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Verse 24, now see. Now that you've searched me and you've tried me, see if there be any wicked way in me. Because I don't want to be this way. I don't want to stay this way. I need you to lead me. See, it's going to be hard for you to be a follower of Jesus. It's going to be virtually impossible for you to be a leader of Jesus until you've been searched and tried by Jesus. But when you allow Jesus to search you and you allow Jesus to try you, then he can begin to lead you, to lead me in the way everlasting. In this series, we've been measuring, we've been discussing 
some toxicity, not that exists in our society, but that exists within ourselves, okay? Um, toxicity, quickly, the quality or state or relative degree, relative degree. We worked hard on this definition. We Googled it on Merriam-Webster, and they say that it is a relative degree of being poisonous. How many of you know that there is a relative degree in, of poison in some body of believers? There's a relative degree of poison in some churches. I'm not talking about church houses. I'm talking about people that go to church houses. And, and I can't do anything about my habitat until I do something about my heart. See, we like to work from the outside in. And we let what's outside affect what's inside. But what God wants to do is affect the inside so that you can affect the outside. He wants to work from the inside out. So he needs us to examine not whether there's stuff around us that is harmful and toxic. We're good at that. You, we're going to do that anyways, okay? He needs to, us to examine what is possibly poisonous, what is possibly harsh, what is possibly malicious speech, action, thought, behavior, what is possibly harmful quality in us, not just pointing it out around us, but letting God point it out within us, when God changes our heart, now we can affect our house. Then we can affect his house, and his house can affect the habitat in which he has planted a house. Toxicity can't stay in the heart. Toxicity can't stay in the house. Toxicity should not be in the habitat. But until we examine the heart... In the habitat it shall remain. See if there be any wicked way in me. 100,000 people surveyed. This is the last survey of this series. I promise that because this is the last sermon of this series. So we're not going to have any more surveys for it. What makes the church toxic? 100,000 people surveyed. 70% of all churches in America are on decline. 70%. 70% of churches are not, are not growing. That's because the people in those churches aren't growing. That was better than you. Let me say it again for the people in the back. Um, it's because the, the 70, I stole that from Pastor Jeff. He said that yesterday. I laughed. I was like, I'm going to say that tomorrow. So there we go. I said it. 70% of churches are on a decline because there is no such thing as maintenance in a church. You're either growing stronger or you're growing stagnant. Okay? There's no like in the middle there. We're either growing in Christ or we're growing away from Christ. One of the two is happening. So 70% of all the churches in America are on decline. What? 87%, 85%, and 91% of Christians, according to this survey, are seen as judgmental, hypocritical, and homophobic. And that doesn't even include those of us who are Islamophobic. Now, I don't need to go into all that because I'm not saying that I'm a fan of any of those things. I'm just saying that's how the church is seen within a 100,000 people surveyed. 70% of those people surveyed said that, that the church is insensitive to others. Now, I, I've been trying to put my finger on how to say this for years because I believe in being spiritual. God is spirit. and We worship him in spirit and in truth. But, and I heard it some way, um, we can't be so 
uh, heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. I've heard that said. And I'm not sure that I really just love that either. But what I, I, am, I do want to say is that we cannot be so spiritually sensitive that we become singularly insensitive. In other words, we can't be so super spiritual, okay, that we become insensitive and impersonal to the individual. And the church, I believe the church should be known for its, kind of like y'all are right now, that's, you're really sensitive. We should be sensitive to all of God's children when they call, all of God's potential children when they call out. We can't be so spiritual that we become insensitive. Now, I read those statistics, and, and honestly, my gut reaction to that is, well, who cares? Who cares what they think? Well, I'll say it this way. We have to care if we want to reach. If we don't want to reach them, then we don't have to care. But if we want to reach them, then we have to care. If if we want to see them saved, come on, then we have to become sensitive to the Holy Spirit enough that they understand that it's by the Spirit that we've been led to them to even show them that we care. Let me put it this way. Um, if a new restaurant came to Eunice in Jesus' name, like a chain restaurant, Chick-fil-A, ha, came and just planted and put a slide in, not for me, but for other people. Not that I like slides, because I do. So if Chick-fil-A came... Or uh, if Chili's came, you know, if somebody didn't build another bank in the name, if, or another set of storage units, you know, it's totally up to, you know, whatever, because we need more car washes. And geez, whatever it is that, so you got to be from here to understand that joke, because it ain't funny, but it is. And so, apartments, hallelujah. So this, if we, not that those are bad, and I'm not saying that I don't like to wash my car and live places, but it's just, you know. I got stuff, and so we'll put them in a unit. But if there was a restaurant that came in, and, and we were all excited about that restaurant, but for some reason, one person in the back of that restaurant one day was having a bad day, and they didn't pay attention to what they were supposed to pay attention to, and when you got your food, it was no good. Now, you're not going to think, man, I wonder if somebody in the back is having a bad day. Bless their heart. I mean, this chicken's rotten. You know, it's just burnt. It's burnt. No, no, no. You're going to say, this whole restaurant stinks. I was so excited about coming to this restaurant. You don't know that it was an individual in the back that didn't understand. Listen, the individual affects the institution. And that same thing that applies to that restaurant applies to this organization, applies to the body of Christ. See, if we just say, well, who cares what they think? Well, we should be. Because God's dominion was delegated to people like us. And his name is only as impactful as we are an example. So if something happened in the restaurant and somebody was upset and I was an owner or a manager or a stockholder, if I have ownership in the kingdom of God, if God positioned me as a manager of his treasure, there's a story there that Jesus talks about when he left something to somebody to be managed until he returns. And that's what Jesus did for us. So if somebody was upset or somebody was negatively impacted because of the individual in the institution, I would want to know 
because if we can fix something that simple to save a soul for all eternity see we're not talking about wanting people to come back to our restaurant to have another good meal we're talking about having people come back to our church to be spiritually fed because this is a heaven and hell issue that we're talking about so that people cannot just be spiritual but people can be saved and God gave us the dominion and we have to care if we want to reach so we need to evaluate are we just speaking out to our personal preferences are we just acting out in regards to our own bias or our own protection mechanism? Is our political voice the loudest voice? Is our prejudice voice the loudest voice? Are we better at pointing fingers than we are praying? Are we better at blaming others than we are being the light in the darkness that he called us to be? I just believe, I'm going to put this up, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I believe that the last church is God's answer to the last days. And there's all kinds of prophetic voices coming out right now about the last days. We're in the last days. It's the last days. It's the church. The world is ending. It's going to burn like fire. God's wrath is coming upon all people. You keep acting like that, you dirty, rotten sinner. Keep killing babies. Keep burning restaurants. I'm telling you, the fire of God is about to, and I hear it. Like, it's all over the place. But hear me. The last church is God's answer. The problem has already been solved. God's church is God's answer for the last days. Just recently, a hero of the faith in the 20th and 21st century passed from this life into the kingdom of God. I mean, if Ravi Zachariah wasn't saved, ain't none of us going to make it. So Ravi Zachariah passed from this life into the next. And Ravi Zachariah was invited. He was telling a story. I was listening to a sermon of his, which I would recommend to you. It's on YouTube. You type in R-A-V-I, Ravi. His last name is Zachariah. The last preaching. It's his last message before he passed from this life into the next. It's about an hour long. Right in the middle is just this nugget of gold where he tells this story about a time that he was invited by the Archbishop of Canterbury to sit with four other people in front of an Islamic sheik. And they were to sit with this Islamic, Islamic sheik and they were to have a conversation. And the Archbishop and the sheik we're going to have a conversation, and Ravi Zachariah, along with a couple of other people, we're going to be allowed to ask the sheik one question. Now, he said about this sheik, this guy was a known terrorist. He was a large man. He was a strong man. He had been not in prison, but in dungeons, okay? He was a radical, religious, terroristic Islamist. And Ravi Zachariah was sitting there. And he had an opportunity to ask one question. So he said, God, what do I say? I need your wisdom. Ravi Zachariah explained that there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. See, knowledge is what you know based on what somebody tells you. And he used Daniel in the house of Nebuchadnezzar as an example. I don't have time to go through the whole story, but Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He saw a, a statue of himself, essentially, from top to bottom, covered in different metals, and he needed somebody to explain to him the dream. So he asked his magicians, modern-day soothsayers or fortune tellers or palm readers, he asked those people to give him the interpretation of that dream. And those people needed knowledge in order to offer wisdom. 
his magicians, his soothsayers, his fortune tellers needed knowledge in order to offer wisdom. But Daniel just needed wisdom because God already had the knowledge. So when his Nebuchadnezzar's soothsayers said, tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. Give us the knowledge and we will give you the wisdom. In other words, give us the issue and we'll give you the answer. Tell us the dream and we'll give you the destiny. We will give you the declaration. We'll explain it. Daniel understood that he didn't need to address the issue in order to understand the answer. Daniel understood that he didn't need knowledge in order to offer wisdom. He understood that he didn't have to address the problem in order to see the potential. He just went to his God and asked for wisdom because God... God's answer is the same for every issue. So Ravi Zachariah asked for that wisdom, and he asked the sheik a question. He didn't tell us what the question was, and the sheik responded, and Ravi Zachariah said out loud, I don't like that answer. And then he began to tremble because he realized how many people that this man had killed, and he thought he was about to be another one. He said, I've just dug my own grave right here. I'm not going to make it out of this place. And as he said, sheik, I don't like that answer, but please let me explain the sheik basically told him to go ahead, angrily, reluctantly, but he let him speak. Ravi Zachariah said, Sheik, 5,000 years ago, on a hill nearby, right outside of this room, we both agree and believe that Abraham, see, he found common ground. Not where he disagreed and focused 100% of that, but where he did agree to use that as leverage to speak God's will. He said, we both believe that Abraham took his son. It doesn't behoove us to debate which son. Which son being Isaac or Ishmael? Which son being Judeo-Christian son or Islamic son? Okay, because the foundation of the faith goes back to Abraham and one of those two sons between Judeo-Christian values and Islamic and Muslim values. He said it doesn't behoove us to debate which son, but we both agree that Abraham went with a son up the side of that hill. He laid his son down on an altar, and as he went to slay his son, God said, Stop. And the sheik said, that's right. And Rabbi Zacharias said, what did he say after that? And the sheik just looked. Rabbi Zacharias said, we both agree that after that, God told Abraham, I will provide the sacrifice. He said, sheik, 2,000 years ago, on another hill just outside of this place, God walked his only begotten son up the side of a hill called Golgotha. And he put him on an, altar, on, on an altar called the cross. And he provided that sacrifice that he had told Abraham he would provide. And until we receive the sacrifice of God and the sacrifice of that only begotten son. Listen, hear me. We will continue to put our own sons and our own daughters on the altar of sacrifice as we continue, even as the church, to fight over power, over prestige, over position, and over protection. Until we receive what Jesus has already done, we continue to sacrifice our children and our children's children for power, prestige, position, and protection. I believe that the last church is God's answer for the last days. So I ask, what if we are the only Jesus that some people see?
What if we are the only church that some people attend? What if we are the individual in the back that that person comes in and encounters that day and they hold the entire institution individual? See, it's very important that we stop looking around and start allowing Jesus to look within. Search me. Try me. See, I believe we either are the last church or we're raising the last church. I believe it's either going to happen in my lifetime or it will happen in my children's lifetime. If it doesn't happen in my children's lifetime, it will happen in my children's children or maybe my children's children's children. And the children that I raise today, whether the return of Jesus is in their lifetime or not, I am raising them and they will raise according to the way that I raise. So I either am the last church or I'm raising the last church. I'm going to give you a note. This is special just for today. I'm going to tell you when Jesus is coming back. I believe. Not 88 reasons in 1988 kind of believe. I'm telling you, I believe right now. I know when he's coming back. Are you ready? Write this down. Jesus is coming back. Some of you are smiling because you've heard it. At any time. That's when he's coming back. At any time. He may come back right now. I always hope he will when I do that. I just always, there's a part of me. Jesus is coming back at any time. The question is not whether he's coming. The question is, will we be ready and how many people will we take with us? He's coming back. Jesus explains a parable in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 36. I almost took this verse out and I didn't realize until I was reading it in first service this morning why I couldn't remove it. Verse 36 says, Then, leaving the crowds, mm, turning off Facebook, going inside the house. See, Jesus said some stuff publicly, but when he really wanted to make a point, he started talking to the people that he wanted to use to make that point. He went in the house with the disciples, the ecclesia, the church. Now, on the inside, the disciples said, Jesus Please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. So verse 37, Jesus replied, The Son of Man is the farmer. Jesus is the farmer. The Son of Man is the farmer who plants the good seed. Watch this, verse 38. If you're an underliner in your Bible, these would be great places to underline. The farmer who plants. Now verse 38. The field is the world. I highlighted that in my notes. I highlighted that in my parchment Bible, and I have it highlighted also in my version digital and on my Logos digital in my computer. I just, I wanted to make sure that I remembered that the field is the world. And the good seed represents the people of the kingdom of God. The weeds are the people who belong to the devil. Write this down, the farmer. The farmer. I want to ask you three questions that I'm asking myself, that God is asking me, that I will review this week. Number one, what is God planting in my life? You need to ask that. You might want to write that down and say it out loud at some point today. What is God planting in my life? Hear me. Come on, super saved person. I'm not asking you what God planted. I'm asking what he's planting. I'm not asking the revelation that you had yesterday. I'm asking the revelation that you had this morning. And tomorrow, I'm not going to...
ask what he said on Sunday. I'm going to ask what he's saying now. I'm not nearly as interested in what God did as I am what he's doing. That's what I want to know. What is God planting in my life? Because the best days are not behind me. His glory is still ahead of me. Unless I think I've called up to his glory and I've arrived beyond his ability to change, empower, or reveal. What is he planting? Now, what am I allowing him to plant? Like, is he even in my schedule? Am I even giving him an opportunity? Or do I spend hours doing other things that really only impact the earth? I'm not saying that some of those things aren't important. Listen, if you are too busy to allow God the opportunity to plant something in you, hear me, listen, listen, you are officially busier than God ever created you to be. You are serving an idol or maybe several because nothing and no one should be prioritized over him in the life of a believer what am i allowing him to plant don't be condemned by this this is so easy to change oh it will walk around with your tail tucked between your legs for the next several days because you hadn't been spending time with jesus no just change just make an adjustment i i put it on your calendar Jesus is not going to be offended if you schedule an appointment with him, I can promise. He's much more hurt by the fact that he never gets to spend any time with you. That was good. That was good. Was. Number three, what am I planting? See, I'm not just going to be known for what God does in me. I'm going to be known in eternity for what God uses me to do in others. Hear me. If God can do it for a preacher of a church, he can do it for some people in a church. Because God is no respecter of persons or positions. And what he's doing for me, you can believe him to do for you. I am, this position and I are no better than any single individual in the entire, in other words, the chef in the back is no worse or no lower than the owner out front. Come on. It's the same institution. So what am I planting in others? Verse 38, the enemy who planted among the wheat is the devil. The enemy who planted weeds among the wheat is the devil. Watch, but the harvest. See, we can be consumed by what's happening or we can be consumed with the harvest around us. We will have to choose the harvest. I'm talking about people not spending eternity separated from God in a place that wasn't created for them to spend called a devil's hell. I'm talking about God using you not to just bring people to church, which would be amazing, but to even take it further than that and go out and be the church. The harvest. If you want to know what the greatest sign of the last days is, you can read this verse and know that the harvest is the end of the world. Souls being saved at a rate that people have never professed Jesus as Lord before in the history of creation is the greatest sign of the end of times. That will not happen without the church. 
problem solved. If the whole world gets saved, we're going to do this the right way. That's the solution. Write down the field, the field, the farmer, the field. The Bible says the field is ripe for the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Come on, you know this one. But the laborers are, no, 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 they're distracted. See, there's plenty of us. We're just too busy with too many other things. We're more concerned with what's happening than we are with the harvest. Millions of believers around the world. There's plenty of laborers. The laborers aren't few. They're just distracted. They're discouraged by the same thing as the unbeliever. They're emotional about the same thing as the people that don't even believe there is a God. We are distracted. We're more driven by political platforms than we are by the power of God and His Holy Spirit. And we wonder, what's wrong with our nation? We're distracted. The field is the world. Just as the weeds, verse 40, are sorted and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. And by the way, that is not something that we should be celebrating. That old song, Jesus is coming soon, many will meet their doom, trumpets will sound. What a horrible celebration. Why would that be in a song? Why would we praise about that? We're going to watch that. And by the way, I know I'm running out of time, but by the way, it is not until after that that the Bible says, and he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more pain and no more sorrow. Why? Because watching people be cast into an eternal lake of fire that we could have impacted if we wouldn't have been just as emotionally driven by the same downfall and things that they were is going to be a terrible moment for the bride of Christ. And God's going to have to intervene in that moment for us to be able to recover from every person that we watch that we could have reached because we were more concerned with what's happening than we are with the harvest. Write down the forgiven. The forgiven. Verse 43. I know I'm messing you up, Regina. Verse 43. Isn't she doing awesome keeping up with me? Then the righteous will shine like the sun. The righteous will shine like the sun. The righteous don't become part of the darkness. They shine like the sun in the midst of the darkness. In their Father's kingdom, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. I hope you wrote down the forgiven. Jude chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to read it quickly. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers. Now, please notice that he doesn't designate between the scoffers and the saved. He doesn't designate between the scoffers and the spirit-filled. He doesn't de designate between the scoffers and those who provide signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. He designates the scoffers as, watch this, following their own ungodly passions. They're passionate about temporary things and neglectful about eternal things. Verse 19, it is these who cause... This is the number one sign of a scoffer. They don't fight for unity. 
they bring more division. It's a sign of a scoffer. So, so we can know what category we're placing ourselves into. If we're living in harmony with one another and letting there be no divisions among you, or if we're part of the division, worldly people devoid of the See, you can't be sensitive to the Spirit and insensitive to the people that the Spirit wants to reach. It is the will of God that none should perish, but that all. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Don't add to it. <laughs> have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. We are God's solution to people being saved and snatched from the fire that is meant for the enemy and his fallen angels. We are the problem solved. The book of Revelation has already told us the end of the story. We don't have to listen to the news or read the news feed to know that God already has the answer to any issue that will ever be from the day that Jesus ascended into the heavens to the day that he descends from the heavens. The ecclesia is still available, alive, and anointed with God's answer for any generation, specifically the last generation. So what does the last church look like? Well, there's only one of them that Jesus gives his stamp of approval in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. There's only one out of seven churches described, only one of them is described as the one that should actually exist in the last days. All the other six were a warning of what not to be like. But this church, I know your deeds. Not just what you say, but what you show in my name. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know, I know that you're tired. I know that you're frustrated. I know that you're concerned. I know that you're irritated. I know that you are cautious for the next generation and, and your children and your children's children and your freedom and your religious liberties and, I, and the lives of those in the womb who can't decide for themselves. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word. He exalted above all things his word, even above his name, and you kept them both. So verse 10, since you kept my command to endure arrogantly, well, I'm sorry, the wrong version. Well, you kept my command to endure frustratingly, angrily. No, come on, church. I need as much help with this as anybody in this room. I can promise you nobody in here is more irritable than me. If you don't believe me, ask my sweet wife. That's why I married so much nicer than myself. The two became one, and together somebody actually likes us. It's good for me. The Bible says I found a good thing. 
Endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants upon the earth. Verse 11, when is Jesus coming? I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Verse 12, the one who is victorious, Jehovah Nisi. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it, and I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Verse 13, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. See, I can't do anything about what's going on out there until I let God do something about what's going on in here. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Father, thank you for your word that it does not return unto you void. If you're confident of who you are in Christ this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to ask, what is God planting in me? What am I allowing the farmer to sow? Not just what God is doing in me, but what am I allowing him to use me to do for him in his kingdom? Where does he fit in my schedule? Ask him. What kind of field and what kind of fruit am I producing not on a weekly basis by being here on Sundays but on a daily basis Monday through Saturday Jesus help me to abide in you and produce the fruit of, of abiding and with every head bowed and every eye closed for anyone in this room who is not confident of who they are in Christ, we believe you can be. The Bible says very clearly, believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, but confess with your mouth. Why? Because with the heart one believes and is justified, but with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. You can be saved. You can receive forgiveness. You can be forgiven. You can walk out of here in right relationship with your Lord, with your friend. If the Holy Spirit is stirring in you and you know that you need to commit or recommit, refresh your covenant with Jesus this morning. I want to invite you right where you are, right where you're listening from, to simply open up your hands like God is giving you a gift because he gave you his only begotten son. And right now, in a posture, in a position to receive, I want to invite the church to support in this prayer out loud as we confess together. Come on, let's pray this together. Jesus, forgive me where I've fallen short, where I've been distracted, part of the problem and not the answer. I believe you gave your life so that I could live. You died on a cross and you were raised from the dead. 
Take my life, make it yours. Use me, save me, cleanse me, and fill me with your spirit. Empower me to be an example for every person in every place. Thank you for saving me. I surrender. I will follow you with all of my heart. Lead me in the way everlasting in Jesus' name. Amen. Come